This is what's called a step wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Health. Today on the show, how one of your taste sensations could unlock answers to treating asthma. And it would also make you feel sort of better inside helping others, right? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Who can put money on the inner glow? Exactly. It's National Volunteer Week this week. We look at why Australia ranks second in the world when it comes to volunteering and how the act of volunteering itself can result in better physical health outcomes. But first... It's been interesting throughout history that the way that we uh, have described our brain has depended on the technology around us. So it was initially thought that we... It's like a series of dams and rivers, and then it became thought of as a series of telephone wires and connected circuits, and now we think of it maybe a bit like a computer. So our ability to imagine is somewhat structured or informed by the realities of the technological world around us. This is Bryce Vissel. Bryce is a professor of neuroscience from the University of Technology, Sydney. Bryce's research looks at diseases that affect the brain, ranging from Parkinson's to spinal disorders. But his favourite research looks at the world of memory. How exactly does a memory form in the brain? Like, what are the processes that store that? We don't know. The fundamental answer is we don't know. We have uh, a very clear idea of the structures in the brain that store memory. There's particular structures such as one which is well described in neuroscience called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a small organ in the brain that has the tricky task of looking after our long-term memory. Um, Memories, as they're stored in the structure, are held there in the short term and over time are distributed out. They'll flow out from the hippocampus into the cortical areas of the brain, which are the areas just under your skull. For neuroscientists like Bryce... As far as memory formation goes, this is about as much as we know. Certainly we have some ideas about it, but it's a very great mystery. I mean, the other thing about memory, when like a computer, where it's stored in a computer chip in a particular encoded memory, um, we think memory is distributed throughout the brain. And how we access it and get hold of that information and uh, draw on it in an immediate way, we're just still working it out. But why these memories are important... Well, we already have the answer to that. The general idea of existence or being able to live is that as we get more experience, we should be able to predict the future. That's what's important for us as living human beings or living animals. And so the importance of memory is not necessarily to be able to recall a specific event. Of course, we have to recall the people we know. And, but more importantly from memory is to actually be able to predict the future. So that when you come across a particular event, you know how to respond to it because of a series of experiences that you've had. Memory is a survival technique. If we didn't have it, you wouldn't be able to remember where you live, where you work, where to get food, water. You wouldn't recognise family, friends. And as Bryce said before, 
we're not exactly sure how these memories form, but a trigger that will really make you remember something is fear. So fear memory doesn't exist on its own. The important thing about fear memory is that it usually has a context. So we know to be fearful in a particular environment, a particular event or a particular context. There's a very sharp and important interaction between a number of regions in the brain, but one that's very well studied is the interaction between the hippocampus where we store the memory of spaces and places and events and the actual fear memory which is stored in the amygdala. The amygdala is an almond-shaped structure in the brain that's name actually comes from the Greek word for almond. It's located very close to the hippocampus, and it's the part of the brain that has power over your senses, muscles, and hormones. And that makes you react to a potential threat. And that's the memory of the event being adversive or dangerous or something that we should be careful of. And so these two kind of memories have to interact with each other. We often use fear memories to study all sorts of memories. You know, you, can, you want to know how a memory is stored about a space. You can learn a lot about that by teaching an animal to be fearful of a particular space. A lot of Bryce's work uses mouse testing. An animal can encode fear extremely quickly. You know, you just have to have you know, almost no time at all in an environment. Give a very mild very mild foot shock. It's, it's not harmful. You can put your finger on, on the foot shock. You know, it doesn't hurt you. But it's enough to kind of give a little bit of a fright to a mouse. And it will remember from then on any very similar, a whole range of environments it'll be fearful of. But give it enough time in the environment to actually have a specific understanding of that environment before giving it that very mild shock. It is only ever future of going forward fearful of that specific environment. These particular mice testings, the results that you're finding, do you see those as being applicable to the human experience? Very interesting things about psychology is how much we've learnt by studying mice and rats. Mm. We've learnt an awful lot, and the reason there's a lot of reasons for that, but one would predict that there are certain things that are just essential for animal survival. One is our ability to move, and that's very well conserved from the basic insects all the way up to human beings. So we think a lot of the spinal cord is very similarly structured from animals all the way up. And in terms of being able to make you know, predictions about what is going to be harmful to us and to make decisions about where we can go find food and water. But the basic structures that we know are important in memory. It's not surprising also then that the structures of um, the brain look ex- very, very similar between a a rat and a human or a mouse and a human. Not only do our neurological makeups resemble other animals like mice, but when basic memory structures are damaged, you'll see very similar effects in humans. In Bryce's mice testing, he's focusing on memory recall, meaning how we remember things from the past. And there are a number of factors that affect our recall, but... Bryce's research, in particular, is looking at when memory recall is faulty. And if that memory is a fear memory, can turn into an overgeneralization of fear. And this can lead to disorders like anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. So one of the ideas in post-traumatic stress disorder is that we recall or we have a recall of a memory at times when we shouldn't or needn't or... And the question is, why do we have those recalls? But in our experience, in our work, what we were realising was that 
the problem is not necessarily, or at least in the experiments we were doing, about recall. It's about encoding the experience. The way we encode an experience is dependent on our senses, our vision, hearing, smell, sense of taste and touch. Traditionally, memory disorders have been associated with this faulty memory recall. But Bryce says to get a greater insight into how these disorders develop, we need to focus on the formation of memory itself. And memory disorders range from post-traumatic stress disorder through to uh, Alzheimer's. But in order to understand Alzheimer's, we made a very early decision that we just have to truly get into memory and memory mechanisms first. I think there's been a lot of focus on the pathology of Alzheimer's, but not enough understanding of Alzheimer's as a disorder of learning and memory. So we feel that we have to do these basic memory studies and understand how memories are encoded, whether fearful or not in order to understand memory, and that we can then translate into um, thinking about Alzheimer's. Bryce Fissel, Professor of Neuroscience and Director of Neuroscience and Regenerative Medicine in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER. Globally, Australia ranks second only to Africa in terms of volunteer participation, with more than 5 million Australians volunteering their time to a cause. Volunteering provides not only benefits to the persons, group or organisation in which you are involved with, but too for the volunteer themselves, resulting in a greater sense of community, mental well-being and also physical health outcomes. As part of National Volunteer Week, Think Health spoke to Bronwyn Dalton, Director of the Masters of Not-for-Profit and Community Management Program at the University of Technology, Sydney. Bronwyn spoke with Liat Samaglu to talk not only the importance of volunteering, but exactly why volunteers see better physical health outcomes. This taps into volunteering being good for your health, but also good for your own sense of well-being and volunteers rated their health much higher than those who did not volunteer. How does volunteer improve one's physical health? We see it in cases with studies on older Australians, for example, a survey done with our grey nomad community show that it reduces morbidity rates and a huge boost in sense of social inclusion, well-being and greater positive attitude towards the future. Are there particular areas of volunteering that improve your physical and mental health or is it just sort of general volunteering? General volunteering because people follow their passion. Mm. So no one's forced to volunteer and they can select what they do. But by virtue of selecting what they're passionate about, all kinds of volunteering can produce a positive physical and mental health effect. And how do volunteers improve the health of others? That's a very good point because they do. So not only are they doing themselves and their health a favour, volunteers are critical to improving both the health and the well-being and mental health of, of others. We have all the hospital volunteer workers, even in hospice care and palliative care. There's a lot of volunteers that support very ill people, but it also takes a lot of pressure off paid health workers Mm. who are also under a lot of stress. Then there is the thousands of Australians that volunteer with aid and development organisations across the world and they deliver vital health services and also, very importantly, preventative health services, immunisation, administering drugs, so forth. But just 
Let me give you, for example, a great story. Last year, I'm on the board of Volunteer New South Wales. We have a competition, Volunteer of the Year. The winner of the Volunteer of the Year, 2016, his name is David Diggs, and he's a dentist. And he was deeply concerned about how the disadvantaged in Australia have terrible dental problems. It's a massive source of chronic pain and disease in um, Australian poorer communities. Mm. So what he did was he founded a national dental foundation and connected dentists with those in need. And last year, over a million dollars worth of free dental treatments were provided to disadvantaged Australians. So that, that's volunteers give so much and help health of others so much. And that's a prime example. It would also make you feel sort of better inside helping others, right? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Who can put money on the inner glow? Exactly. How many uh, Australians volunteer on average? Yeah, we are only second to Africa. Uh, we have, it's the biggest workforce in Australia. We have over 5 million volunteers and they provide over 290 million in equivalent dollars in unpaid work every year. They're the backbone of our civil society. And who generally volunteers? What kinds of people would volunteer? All ranges, except if you profile based on the typical volunteer, they tend to be mothers of primary school age children. I call it the tuck shop effect. But outside of that, it depends on the industry. In sports, it tends to be a lot of dads. It tends to be more male focused in the volunteer firefighting area. Surf's life-saving, younger people generally. But all kinds of people can and do volunteer. Called communities, Indigenous communities, volunteer so much that sometimes they don't know that they're volunteering. Uh, and we need to ask more precise questions in the census to uncover actually the extent to which those particular communities give back. So it's a real general broad uh, mix of Australians. Yes. But I would like to just add that a lot of people want, want to volunteer, but volunteer just doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Mm. And volunteering itself isn't free. It needs to be coordinated. You've got to match volunteers with volunteer opportunities. You've got to have infrastructure to make sure that volunteers are safe, that they have a positive environment, that they meet all their legal obligations, the volunteer engaging organisations. There is a group of people out there in volunteer referral services who ensure this positive experience and encourage more and more volunteers to happen. The problem is in the budget they announced that they're going to cut the $6.4 million dedicated to volunteer management. That's going to affect the 30-plus referral services across New South Wales and the dozens around the country. The volunteer net multiplier contribution, surely it's worth protecting for a small amount of $6 million. What will happen now that um, volunteering has been defunded? Well, some services, it might be a part-time person working in a rural community who does volunteer referral in addition to many other tasks. They won't be able to provide that service anymore mm. if they were relying on, on that income. So it could well affect the numbers of volunteering in Australia. Bronwyn Dalton, Director of the Masters of Not-for-Profit and Community Management Program at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking to Think Health reporter Leah Samaglou. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? 
This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. In our mouths, we have five different taste receptors. Sweet, sour, salty, bitter and umami. But which taste sensation could help us unlock answers about treating asthma? Pawan Sharma is a researcher from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. And his research is looking further into how bitter taste receptors aren't just found in the mouth, but they're also found in the lung. Almost seven years ago, bitter taste receptors were found to be expressed in the lung. Lately, we found they are expressed in other parts of the body, so in the gut as well, in lungs as well. So uh, in 2010, uh, it was found to be expressed on airways wound muscle. The muscle plays a key role in actually relaxing your airways during an asthma attack. So an asthmatic sees an allergen or smoke means that you will narrow your airways. But when they are activated, they found that bitter compounds actually relax the airways. So actually they are beneficial in the lung. So, sorry, let me just backtrack. Mm -hmm. You're saying that there are also similar receptors in the lung that are kind of linked to the ones that we might find in our mouths. Yes, but the distribution is different. So, the distribution of these receptors in in the mouth is even and very uh, coherent, but in the the lungs, it's not evenly distributed. So, they don't have the same function as in the mouth because the receptor expression is different. And as I said, there are a variety of bitter taste receptors There are 25 of them in humans, and not all of them are expressed in the lung. And because you've found this link between, I guess, taste receptors both in the mouth and in the lung, how can that give you greater insight into forming new drugs to treat asthma exactly? Yes, so asthma basically, as you would know, is the narrowing of the airways, and also it involves inflammation. So for an ideal asthma therapy, we would like to block inflammation and also relax the airways at this point in time, we, do, we have a good asthma control using uh, conventional bronchodilators such as Ventolin. So we do have good drug treatment for asthma right now. The only challenge is the severe asthmatics. So in people where asthma goes uncontrolled and nothing works, they are around 10% of them. And then they take up most of the uh, hospital care or the resources in the, in the hospitals. So it is a challenging task to treat those patients. And also with asthma, as it is a chronic disease, over time, you develop other changes in the lung, which are called airway remodeling. So your cells, your tissue in the lung actually remodel. Airway remodeling actually happens over time. It's it's not fully reversible. So we see more changes happening in that direction. So we see increased airway remodeling and severe asthmatics. But steroids and conventional beta agonists or bronchodilators don't actually limit the progression of the disease. So they don't affect the underlying cause of the disease. Interestingly, our studies have shown that bitter taste receptors can actually work at multiple levels. They can also be potent bronchodilators, so they can relax the airways. They can also block inflammation. They can also uh, prevent the progression of the disease. So they can also prevent the uh, structural changes happening in the lung over time. Mm -hmm. So that's very fascinating. So currently, we uh, our studies have shown that they 
work at multiple levels at this point in time. In what forms might these new drug interventions come in? So these, we use a mouse model of asthma uh, using both prophylactic and treatment model. So in, in the prophylactic model, we actually uh, initiated the disease first and then treated them. In the treatment model, we actually established the disease first and then try to reverse the uh, disease symptoms. So in both cases, uh, beta test compounds were actually effective in preventing the disease and also reversing some of the features of the disease. And uh, we use mouse models to uh, test these agents. And uh, these drugs were actually given as uh, intranasal administration, so directly into the lungs. Right. And so yeah. what exactly are you putting into the lungs? We used chloroquine and quinine. And what's that? Those are actually anti-malarial drugs, which uh-huh. have been around for decades and both of them are really safe. How did they get into the mouth? We deliver them to the nose. So we actually uh, intranasally give it to them, and they breathe in, so it goes into the lungs. And once it goes into the lungs, it, it activates the bitter taste receptors and then uh, initiate the beneficial effects. Seeing as these are currently being trialed on mice, mm-hmm. If that were to become applicable to humans, would you see it being administered in the same way to humans? Yes, that's the uh, goal of developing these uh, these agents into um, uh, possible asthma treatments. But there are challenges because these drugs are actually uh, they work at higher concentration right now. So we need to refine the chemical structure of these molecules in order to get better compounds which are safer and more effective in humans. In mouse models, most of the uh, time when we do mouse studies, uh, it does not reflect whether it will work in humans. But we have to use integrative uh, physiology from different species uh, in order to assess that. So currently, the data we have from our lab and other labs in the world suggest these agents are potent bronchodilators. They relax the airways, no doubt about that. But whether they can actually be anti-inflammatory, they can be anti-remodeling, we need to do more and more work on that direction. Pawan Sharma, Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow from the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2SER.com. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.